Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years' experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. What's up, future pilots? This is Nick from Part-Time Pilot. This is the Audio Ground School Podcast. So thank you for listening. In this podcast, I go through one by one the lessons in our online ground school, which you can find at www.parttimepilot.com. Just click on online ground schools. We also have a lot of great other resources in there. We have a frequently asked questions page where we answer your most common aviation questions or how to get started as a student pilot. We even have a free course on how to save money, plan ahead, and a bunch of stuff in there that if I took, if I knew that stuff before I started my pilot training, I would have saved five, $6,000. So go check that out, parttimepilot.com. So uh, today I also want to mention another podcast that I recommended. I, I mentioned on the last couple of podcasts, I want to mention it one more time. It's called the Student Pilot Cast. Anywhere you're listening to my podcast, you can find the Student Pilot Cast by Bill Williams. Bill started on episode one, recording the cockpit audio of his training from episode one on. So what you can hear is you can hear himself talking to his instructor and talking them both talking to ATC. It's a super valuable resource for student pilots. Not only do you get to hear the communications with ATC, and, and get used to used to that sort of thing so that you make you a better talker on the radio. But also it shows you sort of, you know, the successes Bill has, the, the maybe struggles Bill might have. And he makes you feel better that other people are out there going through the same things that you are. It's a great resource to listen to, you know, when you're working, driving, whatever. I love the audio format and we talk about that. I was actually lucky enough to be a guest on his podcast episode number 64. So check that out. We talk about how part-time pilot is trying to fill the gap of the flight training industry. Flight training industry, I believe, is failing student pilots. And when I saw that, eight out of 10 student pilots don't become a pilot, but yet there's a need for pilots. To me, that that's failing. So I saw an opportunity and that's why I started part-time pilot. We also talk about why part-time pilot, why it's called part-time pilot. Well, because everyone who starts as a pilot, you know, the majority, the large majority of us are part-time. We have other full-time responsibilities, like a job to pay the bills, kids to take care of, all that stuff. So the flight training industry really needs to cater to the modern day student pilot, which is a technically a part-time pilot until they make the full the career change, which, you know, by the time they start building enough hours to become that commercial pilot. So Talk about a whole bunch of other good stuff, and Bill is an awesome guy, so I really recommend you guys check that out. Without further ado, let's get started on our next lesson. This is episode number 12, and we're in section three of the online ground school. Section three is on pilot certifications, qualifications, and regulations. So this is the sort of the dry part of the online ground school, but just as important as anything else because you have to know these regulations that the FAA puts out there. In the last episode, we talked about pilot in command, what that means, how you become a pilot in command, how you maintain currency to be pilot in command of an aircraft. And the episode before that, we talked about categories, classes, types of aircraft, and certificates. So those are episodes 10 and 11. If you want to listen to those, go check those out. And then before that, in episodes one through nine, we talked about section one and section two of the online ground school. Section one was just an introduction. Section two is the operation of aircraft systems. So we went over the control surfaces, the lights, the radios, the transponders, the, the instruments, the engine, all that stuff in the aircraft. 
something that a good pilot has to know exactly how all those things work, how they fail, all that stuff. So you, that was in episodes one through nine. So if you didn't catch those, go watch those, download those. And please give us a subscribe. It really helps us out. Get noticed for this podcast. It's a free resource for you guys. I'm doing this completely for free. You know, I'm not charging anything for these these audio things. So it'd be real nice if you leave us a good review, maybe throw a subscribe in there and share it. So thank you for listening. And I really appreciate that. All right. So let's get to it. We are in, again, section three, and we'll be starting on lesson four, which is pilot for higher limitations. We have time. We'll get to lesson five, alcohol and drugs, and maybe even lesson six, incidents, accidents, and emergencies. So here it is, section three, lesson four, pilot for higher limitations. A private pilot cannot fly a passenger or passengers that pay for more than their pro rata share of the flight. So I'm going to say this again. A private pilot cannot fly a passenger or passengers that pay for more than their pro rata share of the flight. This is something that you'll find on the FAA written exam. So that's why I repeated it. This means that a passenger cannot pay more than their split of the flying costs. So if there are two passengers and a private pilot and the aircraft rental, fuel, and all operating expenses total $300, then each passenger may not pay more than $100. The private pilot can pay for the whole $300 flight, but the passengers cannot. So the passengers cannot pay in that situation. They cannot pay for more than $200. The the private pilot has to pay for their pro rata share. You have to split it just like you're out to dinner with friends and you split the bill and you Venmo, you all Venmo each other. That's, that's the same thing. Private pilots are not allowed to make money flying. That is reserved for a commercial pilot's license. So that is one of the rules of a private pilot's license. The costs of a flight are considered fuel, oil, airport expenditures, or rental fees. The only exceptions, the only exceptions to this rule are passengers are allowed to pay for the flight if a donation is made to a charitable organization for the flight as long as the organization is described as in FAR 91.146 and the sponsor and pilot comply with the requirements of FAR 91.146, which you can read more about at if you just Google FAR 91.146. The next exception to this rule, the pro rata share rule, is that a private pilot may be reimbursed for aircraft operating expenses that are directly related to search and location operations or search and rescue, provided that expenses only involve fuel, oil, airport expenditures, or rental fees, and the operation is sanctioned and under the direction and control of either a local, state, or federal agency or an organization that conducts search and location operations. So you may find out there on the Internet that there are some private pilots that get, you know, their the, their flying costs reimbursed, their operating expenses reimbursed when they fly search and rescue operations. These jobs are few and far between. And it's not really a job. You're not making a salary because, again, as a private pilot, you are not allowed to have compensation for hire. You need a commercial pilot's license for that. But there are some some opportunities out there where you can get your costs reimbursed. The next exception is a private pilot may, for compensation or hire, act as pilot in command of an aircraft in connection with any business or employment if the flight is only incidental to that business or employment and the aircraft does not carry passengers or property for compensation or hire. So this means for your job, if you get paid for your job and you have to travel for your job, you can, if your job accepts it that they'll say hey yeah as an incidental we will reimburse you for whatever travel costs even if you want to take your own plane they'll reimburse you for the the cost of of that trip as incidental but again you can't carry passengers or property for compensation or hire it's just your normal job salary and then you get reimbursed for the cost to travel just like you would if you got a rental car or or flew on a company plane or something like that so now there are a few other limitations that exist. Those are the sort of the three main ones that I expect you might get asked about. There's only one that I've seen on the FAA written exam, and that is the first one. And I'll repeat that here. Passengers are allowed to pay for the flight if a donation is made to a charitable organization for the flight. So just remember, 
the pro rata share. Passengers cannot pay more than their fair share when it's with a private pilot. And the only exception, there's a few exceptions to that. And the one I really want you to remember is that passengers are allowed to pay for the flight if a donation is made to a charitable organization for the flight. And then again, we talked about those other ones, the the search and rescue or the the um, you know, any business of employment that reimburses you for travel expenses. Okay. So there's a few other limitations that exist. Uh, that again, like you'll likely not be asked, but there's a small chance you might be asked on your check ride. So I will mention these because they are in the FARs. A private pilot who is an aircraft salesman and who has at least 200 hours of logged flight time may demonstrate an aircraft in flight to a prospective buyer. A private pilot who meets the requirements of FAR 61.69 may act as a pilot in command of an aircraft towing a glider or unpowered ultralight vehicle. And then finally, a private pilot may act as pilot in command for the purpose of conducting a production flight test in a light sport aircraft intended for certification in the light sport category under FAR 21.190, provided that the aircraft is powered a powered parachute or weight shift control aircraft. The person has at least 100 hours of pilot in command time in the category and class of aircraft flown, and the person is familiar with the processes and procedures applicable to conduct production flight testing to include operations conducted under a special flight permit and any associated operating limitations. All right. So told you guys this was a little bit dry, but it is stuff you have to know. Pay key attention. Take notes on the stuff that I mentioned will be on the FAA written exam. And with that, we can we can move on to the next lesson, which is the next lesson is lesson five of the online ground school section three. So we're in section three of the online ground school pilot certifications, qualifications, regulations. And we're moving on to lesson five, which is on alcohol and drugs. So let's get started with that right now. The PIC, which remember is the pilot in command, is required to have not consumed any alcohol or drugs within the last eight hours or have below a 0.04% blood alcohol content or BAC or not be under any influence while using the drug that affects the pilot's faculties in any way contrary to safety. This rule is pretty straightforward for alcohol. A common mnemonic device is eight hours bottle to throttle. However, this is not the whole story. You must meet the other requirements because remember it was or. It was any drugs or alcohol within the last eight hours or have below 0.04% BAC or not be under any influence. So you must meet those other requirements in addition to eight hours bottle to throttle. So it's just not eight hours bottle to throttle. If you're sort of a lightweight and you have a couple shots, you know, nine hours ago, there's probably still, you might still have an influence on you and there's probably still some blood alcohol. There's some alcohol in your blood. Sorry about that. So you, what is under any influence? You can't be showing any signs of effect from the alcohol. And this would be obviously, you know, if something were to happen is when you would be checked for this and someone would, some officer or something would have to, would have to make that determination or maybe it's ATC. You're slurring your words or something. Just don't do that. Okay. That's stupid. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't drink and drive. Don't drink and fly. All right. Let's just, let's be smart here. Furthermore, only in an emergency may a pilot in command allow a person who appears intoxicated to be carried on the aircraft. So not only can you not be anywhere close to intoxicated, but you can't even carry people who appear to be intoxicated. Only in an emergency can you do that. And this is exactly what we we've been seeing on commercial airlines. The the rule remains the same. That's why they, you're not allowed to bring your own alcohol on. They don't want, and they, they don't overserve you the alcohol. They might give you one or two, you know, maybe if you're in first class, they'll give you a third drink or something, but they, you, you can't be intoxicated on an aircraft unless it's, unless it's an emergency. So all crew members may be subject to a drug alcohol test. So that includes the pilots. So don't risk it. Follow the rule and keep yourself alive. Just one alcoholic drink can be detected in the breath for up to three hours. So let's review that again. Eight hours bottle to throttle, no effects, and below 0.04% blood alcohol content. And then again, we have that 
only in an emergency may a PIC allow a person who appears intoxicated to be carried on your on the aircraft. So those sort of last things that I just repeated will be likely found on an FAA written exam. Might not get it on yours, but it, I definitely know those questions exist. So it's good to be prepared for those. For drugs, this gets a bit murky because of the vast amounts of prescription drugs used commonly today. The AOPA has an acceptable list of prescription drugs for operated in aircraft that we have a link to in the online ground school, and I will put the link in the show notes. That, But you need an AOPA membership. It is free, and I recommend it. I think they have some paid memberships. It's been a while since, since I got mine. But it's the best resource for anything involving legal things like this, like, like alcohol and drugs or anything medical. AOPA really helps pilots out with with their medical advising and getting things that might not be clear through the FA clearing those things up. So AOPA is a, a great resource. I'll put that link again in the show notes. So so AOPA is a great resource, but the best resource is your FA certified medical examiner. So that's your AME that you got your medical cert with. If you don't have one, you can you can find one. Just type in search AME pilot in Google and there's a there's a search tool that the FAA has. You can find one near you and they list their phone numbers. You can give them a call. But you should have one that, that did your medical exam. So give him or her a call and ask if the drug you plan to use or, you know, maybe because you're working with your primary doctor who might prescribe you something. It's good to update your aviation medical examiner with any new prescriptions and just make sure that there's no you know, if you're taking multiple prescriptions, make sure that they're not combining or mixing in a way that might might be not allowed by the FAA to fly with. And there might be or just one prescription might not be allowed. So always check. That's your best resource is your your aviation medical examiner. Ask them if the you know, that drug is OK for flight. But remember, the overlying rule is that no matter what, the drug that may not affect your faculties in any way contrary to safety. So even if the medical examiner says this is not, you know, this is not on the prohibited list, you're you're good to go. If it might be different for you and it might affect you differently than other people and it might, you know, affect your faculties in any way contrary to safety. So again, that is the overall rule. So even if it's not on that list and it's affecting you negatively, and then something, God forbid, happens and they find it in your system, you still could, you know, get in trouble for that. So, so just be careful, use your aviation medical examiner's resource and make sure it's not affecting you negatively. A pilot convicted of operating a motor vehicle while either intoxicated, impaired, or under the influence of alcohol or a drug is required to provide a written report to the FAA Civil Aviation Security Division no later than 60 days after conviction so this is even any motor vehicle this is not even flying so if you're driving or boating even like any motor vehicle that in state laws you're fine that you're intoxicated impaired or under the influence of alcohol or drugs you have to write a written report to the fa civil aviation security division no later than 60 days after conviction so and unfortunately it is going to affect you're going to have to get to prove that you don't have any addiction to that with you're probably going to have to get a new aviation medical exam and, and fill out some new paperwork when that happens so do not have that happen you might get your license taken away even if it was a, a driving a car and so you also have to notify them so there's no getting away from it the best if that happens to you the best thing to do is just accept the fact that, that you made a mistake and, and move on from there and do the right things because if you don't if you try to be sneaky with it it's only going to get worse. A pilot convicted for a violation of any federal or state statute relating to the process, manufacture, transportation, distribution, or sale or of narcotic, narcotic drugs is ground for suspension or revocation of any certificate or rating or authorization issued under 14 CFR Part 61. So basically what this says... If you're convicted of any violation, federal or state, related to anything pretty much to do with narcotic drugs, you can get your certificate taken away. That's all, that's all that says, basically. So, 
you know, let's not let's not be drug dealers uh, if we want to be pilots. Let's not <laughs> manufacture drugs. Let's not make drugs. Let's not transport drugs. Let's not distribute drugs. Let's not sell drugs. Let's not be involved in any process of narcotic illegal drugs uh, if we want to be a pilot. So otherwise, you'll you'll if you get caught, your license will be gone. So don't do that. And that is it. So that's that's the alcohol and drugs. That's lesson number five of section three. And I have a video of this one. So if you guys want a little bit of a visual sort of lecture environment to to watch a video, I'll put that link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. So you can watch that also for free. So check that out. I'll put again in the show notes along with the other things that I mentioned, like that link to AOPA. And with that, let's move on to lesson six. I think we're only about 20 or so minutes into this episode, so we got plenty of time. We can cruise right along to some more super exciting content. Uh, Lesson six is on incidents, accidents, and emergencies. So let's let's dive into that one. And on this one, there's a lot of information on this one, but I want you to key into the times I say Remember this for your FA written or your checkride exam, because this is one of those sections where there is a ton of content. But the FAA says, look, we're not going to expect you to memorize all this stuff as a student pilot. Obviously, if an incident or accident or emergency happened to you, you would look up. We would expect you to look up what to do, you know, the right thing to do in that situation. When it happens and it's not something that they expect you to know every single thing of, but there are some things that they do throw on the FA written. And of course, you are required to know a lot of stuff. So your check ride, your examiner on check ride, if they're mean, they might ask you some questions on this. So just just remember to key in on the times where I say this might be on the FA written. I will talk about a lot of stuff because it is good to know and it is, you know, in the forest, like I said. So that I just want to throw out that disclaimer that this this lesson is is longer than maybe it really needs to be for what's on going to be in our exams, but it's still good information to know. All right. So once again, we're on lesson six of section three, and this is incidents, accidents and emergencies. Incidents and accidents are defined in the Code of Federal Regulations, 49 CFR 830. And depending on the severity of an incident or accident, a pilot may be required to notify the National Transportation Safety Board or NTSB. So that's one of the major things you're going to need to remember for the your exams is what sort of incident or accident it makes it so that I have to notify the NTSB. So if I get into this sort of incident or this sort of accident, do I have to notify the NTSB and what do I have to do? So that's kind of the key thing that they want you to remember. So the first, let, let's break it down into incidents. So there, there's incidents, and then there's serious incidents, and then there's accidents. And we'll tell you the difference here. So let's first start with incidents. The NTSB categorizes incidents into two categories, incidents and serious incidents, as I mentioned. An incident is an occurrence other than an accident associated with the operation of an aircraft, which affects the safety of operation. For example, an in-flight radio communications failure or the failure of an alternator in flight. So what is an accident? We're going to get to that in a sec, but I just want to say the definition of an accident so you can kind of know the difference. An accident is defined as an occurrence associated with the operation of an aircraft, which in the case of manned aircraft, like what we would be with pilot as pilots, takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intention of flight until such time all the persons have disembarked in which a person is fatally or seriously injured as a result of there's some things or the aircraft sustains damage or structural failure which and then there's some more things or the aircraft is missing or completely inaccessible and again we'll get to the details on accidents but i just want to tell you that now so you know the difference so let's hop back to talking about incidents And again, we talked about there's two types, incidents and serious incidents. An incident is an occurrence other than an accident, so which I just mentioned those things in an accident. So either there's substantial damage to the aircraft or and structural failure, or it's missing or completely inaccessible, or a person is fatally or seriously injured. So those sort of three things, someone injured, the aircraft injured, 
That's an accident. So other than an accident is an incident. Incident. Associated with the operation of aircraft, which affects the safety of operation. So again, those examples were in-flight radio communication failure or a failure of an alternator in flight. A serious incident, however, is an incident involving circumstances indicating that there was a high probability of an accident. So maybe an accident didn't occur, but there was a high probability of what happened to you could have very well led to an accident. And that's uh, they, they want to make sure that even though this accident didn't happen, the pilot and the FAA, they got lucky in this case because what caused that that incident could have very well caused an accident. So we're going to call those serious incidents. And so high probability of an accident and associated with operation of aircraft in which in the case of manned aircraft takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intentional flight until such time as all persons have disembarked. So basically the minute someone steps onto that aircraft, whether it's a pilot or a passenger, that's when the timer starts for something to be an incident or an accident and tell, and the timer stops once all the people are off that aircraft. So I used to tell, uh, I had a friend that was scared of flying and I told them, you know, I, I used to work for Boeing and they, we all at Boeing has these goals and it, it's basically a number of incidents and accidents per million, millions of flight, millions of flights. And they, over the years that, that number has gone down like crazy, crazy amounts, like exponentially. And obviously Boeing's been in the news lately for, for some bad accidents, which have, have spiked that number. But, but before that it was like, man, I don't know. It was like single digits of times per million of, of flights or something like that. And so I would tell my friends, I would tell them that like, look, like it's, it's like a one in a million thing. Like you're more likely to get bitten by a shark or something like that to, to try and make them feel better. And then I would also add that they even include anything that happens by the time the first person, even if it's a crew member or a pilot or a cleaning crew, anytime someone boards that aircraft for the purpose of flight. So maybe not the cleaning crew, but any for the purpose of flight until the, everyone disembarks. So even if the, the stewardess or, or steward goes on there and it, it's completely parked and the aircraft engine is off, but they're going on there in preparation for the upcoming flight and they trip getting on onto the aircraft and they hit their head that goes down in the books as an incident. So, th I mean, that's just something I would always tell them, you know, that's what the FAA classifies, but that's their timer. So things like that, things, you know, like, baggage falling on on a passenger's head or something would also be considered something like that so there's a lot more things than than just you know crashing and stuff like that so i would try to say that to make make my friend feel better and that's just sort of an example i wanted to give to tell you that 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 timer is from the first time someone embarks for the purpose of flight and uh, until such time as all persons have have disembarked so in other words, a serious incident is an incident involving circumstances indicating that an accident nearly occurred. The following serious incidents require immediate notification to the NTSB per part 830.5. Flight control system malfunction or failure. Inability of any required flight crew member to perform normal flight duties as a result of injury or illness. Failure of any internal turbine engine component that results in the escape of debris other than out the exhaust path. In-flight fire. Aircraft collision in, fight, in flight. Damage to property other than the aircraft estimated to exceed $25,000 for repair, including materials and labor, or fair market value in the event of total loss, whichever is less. For large multi-engine aircraft, more than 12,500 pounds maximum certificated takeoff weight. So large multi-engine above 12,500 pounds. There is a in-flight failure for those aircraft of electrical systems, and which requires the sustained use of an emergency bus powered by a backup source, such as a battery auxiliary power unit, 
or air-driven generator to retain flight control or essential instruments. Or there's, again, for these heavy aircraft, in-flight failure of hydraulic systems that results in sustained reliance on the sole remaining hydraulic or mechanical system for movement of flight control surfaces. And again, for these large multi-engine aircraft, sustained loss of the power or thrust produced by two or more engines. An evacuation of an aircraft in which an emergency egress system is utilized. So those are all for large multi-aircraft engine. Then continuing for all, all aircraft, release of all or a portion of a propeller blade from an aircraft, excluding release solely caused by ground contact. So they, they exclude the release caused by ground contact. A complete loss of information, including flickering from more than 50% of an aircraft's cockpit display known as electronic flight instrument system, EFIS displays, engine indication and crew alerting system, ICAS displays, electronic centralized aircraft monitor, ECAM displays, or other displays of this type, which generally include a primary flight display or PFD, primary navigation display, PND, and other integrated displays. I'll talk a little bit about this one in, in a bit, but let's continue and finish this list. Airborne collision and avoidance systems, or ACAS, resolution advisories issued when an aircraft is being operated on an instrument flight rules flight plan and compliance with the advisories necessary to avert a substantial risk of collision between two or more aircraft. That's also considered a serious incident. Any event in which an operator, when operating an airplane as an air carrier at a public use airport on land that lands or departs on a taxiway, incorrect runway, or other area not designed as a runway, experiences a runway incursion that requires the operator or the crew of another aircraft or vehicle to take immediate corrective action to avoid a collision. So this last one, any event in which an operator, when operating an airplane as an air carrier at a public use airport on land, lands or departs on a taxiway, incorrect runway, or something not designed as a runway that reminds me makes me think of harrison ford i don't know if you guys ever heard that story but harrison ford is a pilot and he's had a few mishaps as a pilot so it's kind of on the internet uh, a joke among pilots but he his most recent in southern california i can't remember i want to say it was palomar or john wayne or, or one of those orange county airports but he landed on the on the taxiway and so <laughs> that kind of reminded me of him. The other one I wanted to talk about is a, a complete loss of information, excluding fl excluding flickering for more than 50% of an aircraft's cockpit display known as EFIS, ICAST, ECAM, PFD. So this is talking about aircraft with, with glass cockpits. Glass cockpits we'll talk about, or we actually, we did mention it's, it's where instead of the six pack of analog instruments, you have digital flight instruments. So in these more modern digital displays of your cockpit instruments, you know, your altimeter, your altitude, your altimeter, your attitude indicator, your airspeed indicators, things like that. Also, you have your instrument gate, uh, your engine gauges like and fuel gauges. So you have fuel quantity, fuel pressure, engine oil pressure and temperature, stuff like that. All very critical things. These modern glass cockpit displays have redundancy built into these displays so that if if it does die they have a backup power source or they have a backup display and, and certain things built into the, with with buttons and things because they understand that they have to have that redundancy because if you lose all if you lose your entire screen that has all your critical components that's going to be that's going to be very bad so they have these these redundancies built in so if that if even with those redundancies it still fails the faa considers that a a serious incident because the chance that you are essentially then you're flying with just your sight picture out the window so if you are flying ifr you're obviously that's a that's going to be very very extremely dangerous and you're going to be lucky if you do not have an accident if you're flying in clouds with no visibility. But even if you're flying VFR, you're you know you're one hazy day or or unexpected bad visibility day or cloud away from 
from making that a very serious emergency. And even if it is a clear day, flying without your instruments can can be a little tricky. So that's why the you know the FAA considers that a serious incident. A student just asked me like, why is that a serious incident? So I kind of explained that to them. But they they also said, why is that a serious incident? But losing an engine is is not a considered a serious incident which requires a report because remember all these serious incidents the reason why we're talking we're distinguishing serious incidents from incidents is that a serious incident requires a a report immediate notification to the ntsb so the following serious incidents require immediate notification to the ntsb so that's kind of why we're distinguishing them them from regular incidents and so why we're talking about like, well, why would you not, why would an engine loss not be on there? Well, there's a lot of cases where, where out in America, there's some rural areas. There's, there's a lot of airports, private strips and stuff like that, where they're surrounded by, by fields where losing an engine. I, I know this sounds crazy, but it's not, it's definitely not the worst thing in the world. And you can land perfectly fine with absolutely no damage to the aircraft. And there are things that cause the engine to die or, you know, combustion engines that are also not that, I mean, it's definitely serious, but it doesn't mean that there's something substantially or critically or structurally wrong with your aircraft or your aircraft engine. You could simply have too much water that gets in your fuel tanks and that could cause an engine out, you know, things like that. So the FAA doesn't want you to, notify ntsb every time your engine goes out because of things like that one it it happens kind of often when it does happen it doesn't necessarily have to be something super super serious you know your plane just turns into a glider not as efficient as as gliders but it is turns into a glider when you lose your engine so as long as you have a plan and you're able to either land on a road or a field or turn back to to the runway you you are able to to do that. And I'm not saying that losing an engine isn't scary as crap. I'm not saying that at all. And it is very serious and it is an emergency. But the FAA only, if you were to lose the engine and then crash or then do one of these other things, right, uh, then it would be reportable. But if you're, you lose an engine and then come down and land on your field next to your airport, you know, you just tow the aircraft back and get it checked out. And if, if there was something serious about it, then maybe you report it, but yeah. Anyway, so that's sort of the, the reason why they, it's kind of a, a, a slight nuance, but anyways, so let's get back to it. Also requiring immediate notification to NTSB is an aircraft that is overdue and is believed to have been involved in an accident. So remember these serious incidents are required to be reported to the NTSB immediately. And a report should be filed by the pilot if requested by the NTSB. So I I came up with a a mnemonic device. Or actually, I didn't come up with this. I found this one. Sometimes I forget whether I came up with it or not. But common mnemonic device to remember the most common serious incidents requiring immediate notification. And that's P-faction. So... I, I can't remember. Maybe I did come up with this. I, I'm not sure, but it's property damage, which is $25,000 worth of property damage. So that's the P. Fire in flight, that's the F. Accident, collision in flight, turbine failure, illness of crew member, overdue aircraft, and no control or control failure. So P faction. Again, these mnemonic devices can be very powerful when trying to remember these dull, long lists of things. And what I want you to remember for the FAA written is if you can remember that P faction, again, property damage of 25,000, fire in flight, accident, collision in flight, turbine failure, illness of crew member, overdue aircraft, no control or control failure. If you can remember these, these serious incidents and accidents that require immediate notification to the NTSB, that will be a big step. You should be good for anything you might get asked on your on your check ride or on your FA written. And then you want to remember that serious incidents are required to be reported to the NTSB immediately. So serious incidents, not just a regular incident. 
and that a report should be filed by the pilot if requested by the NTSB. So a serious incident happens, you have to uh, notify the NTSB immediately, and then you file a report if requested by the NTSB. The most expeditious method of notification to the NTSB by the operator will be determined by the circumstances existing at that time. The NTSB has advised that any of the following would be considered examples of the type of notification that would be acceptable. That's direct telephone notification, telegraphic notification, notification to the FAA, who would in turn notify the NTSB by direct communication, i.e. dispatch or telephone. And then the notification required above should contain the following information if available. So type, nationality, and registration marks of the aircraft, name of the owner and operator of the aircraft, name of the pilot in command, date and time of the accident or incident, last point of departure and point of intended landing of the aircraft, position of the aircraft with reference to some easily defined geographical point, number of persons aboard, number killed, and number seriously injured, nature of the accident or incident, the weather, and the extent of damage to the aircraft so far as is known, and a description of any explosives, radioactive materials, or any other dangerous articles carried. So again, this is if you are required to notify the NTSB. That's what they want to, to, to know when, when you contact them. And again, you only have to immediately uh, contact them and tell them about the incident if it's a serious incident like the ones we listed below, the P-faction incidents and then you file a report if they request after you've notified them so that's serious incidents and incidents let's talk about accidents we've kind of talked about them a little bit an accident is defined as an occurrence associated with the operation of an aircraft which in the case of manned aircraft takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intention of flight until such time as all persons have disembarked so again so that same time frame we talked about before and then in which, so here is what is considered an accident. A person is fatally or seriously injured as a result of being in the aircraft, direct contact with any part of the aircraft, including parts which have become detached from the aircraft, direct exposure to jet blasts. So you could, you know, turn on your aircraft engines and a jet throws a rock at someone and hits them in the head. That is, you know, a person is fatally or seriously injured by the result of that that's determined an accident. If, you know, part of your, let's say your flap falls off and hits someone in the head and fatally or seriously injures them, that's an accident. Then, also accidents are the aircraft sustains damage or structural failure, which adversely affects the structural strength, performance, or flight characteristics of the aircraft and would normally require major repair or replacement of the affected component. So, any damage or structural failure which affects the structural strength so how much load the the wings and the fuselage can can withstand performance or flight characteristics so how much lift it can produce the wings or tail can produce you know what sort of air speeds that the the flaps can do to maybe the flaps can't extend all the way because of something that would affect the flight characteristics of the aircraft and that would all those things would require major repair or replacement of the affected components. And then finally, if the aircraft is missing or is completely inaccessible. So inaccessible might be like it you landed on a lake and it floated to the bottom of the lake. It's pretty much completely inaccessible. And if it's missing, then that, you know, maybe you, I don't know, if you, if you jump out and crash into a mountain and it completely blows up into smithereens like in the movies... <laughs> then uh, that would, I guess, be when it would be missing. Um, so for aircraft accidents, a pilot is required to notify the NTSB immediately and file a report within 10 days. So that's different from our serious incidents. Both of those, serious incidents and accidents, you have to require, you have to notify the NTSB immediately. But with serious incidents, you only had to submit a report if requested after that. But with an accident, you must file a report within 10 days. So if it does any of these things that make it an accident, you know, person is fatally or seriously injured, aircraft sustains damage or structural failure, or it becomes missing or completely inaccessible, then you got to notify NTSB immediately and you got to file a report within 10 days. We talked about sort of the things that would be in that report. 
The other thing I want you to remember, so we talked about you know what makes a serious incident. Those are the P faction and that serious incidents are different than incidents because you have to immediately notify NTSB and then you have to file a report if requested. And then accident, you have to immediately file or immediately notify NTSB and then file a report within 10 days. So the next thing I want you to remember that might be on your exam or you might be asked about is the aircraft wreckage. And I actually was asked about this from my examiner. Aircraft wreckage may only be moved prior to the time the NTSB takes custody if it is moved to protect the wreckage from further damage. So if you get in an accident and you crash your airplane, you can only move it. You're only allowed to move it prior to NTSB getting there and taking custody of it if it is moved to protect the wreckage from further damage. So if, uh, let's say, you crash into, let's say, crash into one aircraft on the taxiway and then now both your aircraft have ended up on the landing part of the runway, you'd want to move those because they might cause further wreckage or damage from other aircraft, right? So I that might be, not be the best example, but you get what it's saying there. Um, don't move it unless you have to move it to protect the wreckage from further damage, but otherwise don't move it until NTSB gets there. Some examples of aircraft damage which do not require reports to the NTSB, and I kind of mentioned one or two of these before, are engine failure or damage limited to an engine, bent fairings or cowling, dented skin or small punctures in skin or fabric, ground damage to rotor or propeller blades, and or damage to landing gear, wheels, brakes, flaps, engine accessories, or wingtips. This means things like losing a propeller blade, flight controls becoming unresponsive, and fuel leaks are all required for the aircraft to be grounded and reported to the NTSB. The next thing I want to talk about is near-collision reporting. The primary purpose of the near midair collision or NMAC reporting program is to provide information for use in enhancing the safety and efficiency of the national airspace system. Data obtained from NMAC reports are used by the FAA to improve the quality of FAA services to users and to develop programs, policies, and procedures aimed at the reduction of NMAC occurrences near midair collisions. A near-mid-air collision is defined as an incident associated with the operation of an aircraft in which a possibility of collision occurs as a result of proximity of less than 500 feet to another aircraft, or a report is received from a pilot or a flight crew member stating that a collision hazard existed between two or more aircraft. So, this is what I want you to remember. A near-mid-air collision is an incident where a possibility of collision occurs with a proximity of less than 500 feet between two aircraft. So remember 500 feet between two aircraft or one of those pilots or crew members state and report that there was basically a collision hazard. So if it's reported by one of the pilots or crew members, or if in some equipment that's on board the aircraft detects that they were within 500 feet from each other, that would also be considered a mere midair collision. It is the responsibility of the pilot and or flight crew to determine whether a near midair collision did actually occur and if so to initiate an NMAC report. So if if the equipment on your aircraft says you're within 500 feet, it's not going to automatically report that. It's the responsibility of the pilot and or flight crew to determine whether that near midair collision did actually occur or if maybe your your equipment was off or something or just to detect a anomaly or something. And then you would have to be the pilot or crew member, flight crew member would have to initiate that NMAC report. Uh, in the report, be specific as ATC will not interpret a casual remark to mean that a NMAC re is being reported. The pilot should state, I wish to report a near mid-air collision. Pilots and or flight crew members involved in NMAC occurrences are urged to report each incident immediately. And you can do that by radio or telephone to the nearest FAA ATC facility or FSS or in writing in lieu of the above, which is the radio or telephone, to the nearest FISDO, which is the Flight Standards District Office, which you can look up the nearest FISDO near you. Items to be included in the report can be found at a leak 
uh, a link, which I have in the online ground school, and I'll put that in the show notes. So again, hopefully this not, doesn't happen. You don't have to know, remember these things like what's in the report for your FA written or your check ride or, you know, how to contact them and report in NMAC. You know, they, the FAA expects that if something like that happened, that you would be able to then look it up and, and find the right things to do. But I do want you to remember that it is the responsibility of the pilot and flight crew member to make that report and that a near midair collision, something that is considered that is within 500 feet proximity of two aircraft or a pilot or flight crew member reporting it themselves saying a hazard existed and there was a near midair collision. So it's either, those two things I want you to remember. Uh, about near, near mid-air collisions. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about is discarding things from an aircraft. Uh, believe it or not, a pilot is allowed to discard things from an aircraft if the proper precautions have been taken to avoid serious injury or damage to persons or property on the surface. This rule is likely made for heavy aircraft who need to land or ab above their max landing weight and therefore need to dump fuel or other cargo. So let's say... There are aircraft out there that uh, take off and at weights because they need so much fuel to travel such long distances or for such long time. So they need a bunch of uh, fuel. They're able to, to barely take off, right? So they take off. And if they have an emergency immediately, their takeoff weight, their maximum takeoff weight is much higher than their maximum landing weight because the landing weight is dictated by how much force the, the gear can take landing, right? And so that maximum landing weight might be a lot less. So if a really heavy aircraft takes off and then has an emergency and needs to land right away, they're probably, when they do land, come in, they're just going to squash, squish their, their landing gear, completely break their landing gear. So what they'll try and do is try and get rid of, dump some fuel, is the most common thing or maybe if it's a military aircraft they might throw out some cargo or something to try and get that weight down on the aircraft so that they can land safely in that emergency situation and that is allowed and that's probably why it's allowed and it's allowed if proper precautions have been taken to avoid injury or damage to persons or property on the surface so one precaution when we did when i used to work as a flight test engineer we would dump fuel but we would do it at, at a higher altitude where the fuel kind of vaporizes mostly and wouldn't come down you know and fall on people or intoxicate anybody or something like that so uh you got to make the proper precautions uh but it is allowed it also could have been made for pilots to be able to discard anything that may be causing them or the aircraft harm and one example of that is there's some better reports not so much anymore but definitely Reports of things that have lithium ion batteries like, you know, like an ion, uh, sorry, like an iPad or something. Those batteries can can burst into flames. And the best reaction is to remove it from the aircraft that the pilot doesn't have a fire bag. So there are things called fire bags where if you have something that lights on fire in your aircraft, you put it in that bag, seal it, and it, it extinguishes it. If you don't have something like that, you don't want those flames in your cockpit. So you want to toss those out the door or the window. I actually was asked this on my check ride. I had my my iPad with me. I was using ForeFlight, and my examiner said your your iPad just caught fire. The battery's on fire. It's uncontrollable fire. You you're trying to put it out. You can't put it out. You know what do you do? And so I said, well, I just tossed it out the window. It actually fits out that little window on the on the pilot side. I squeeze, I forced it out there. I made precautions that, you know, there wasn't cars or, or people below me. I was in the mountains, you know, kind of in the foothills of, of some mountains. So I threw those out, threw that out and uh, don't think I'll hit anybody. And then from then on, I had to navigate with it without my foreflight, which was kind of a bummer. But uh Luckily, I was prepared for that, and that's why at Part-Time Pilot, we prepare you to be able to navigate old school with VORs and all that because you are you might get an examiner just like I did, which I think is smart, and it makes you a better pilot if you can navigate with all the, the resources available to you, including ForeFlight and including the analog instruments. 
All right. So that's discarding things from the aircraft. The last thing I want to talk about is just briefly mention some things on emergencies. Pilots are required to follow the direction of air traffic control unless they as PIC deem a situation unsafe and need to act against ATC in order to keep themselves or the aircraft safe. If an emergency requires immediate action, a pilot may deviate from any rule of 14 CFR Part 91 to the extent required to meet that emergency. We kind of talked about this before in previous episodes, but it's good to state this again. A pilot is required then to submit a detailed report of an emergency, which resulted in the pilot deviating from ATC clearance instructions within 48 hours of the emergency if it is requested by ATC. So anytime you break the rules of part part 91 to uh, meet the, the meet the need for an emergency or if you are to break what ATC has told you to do for that emergency, you're allowed to do that as pilot in command to keep you and your aircraft safe and other people safe. But you're required to submit a detailed report when that happens within 48 hours if ATC requests you and they, they likely would request that, you know, by the time you land or contact your flight school or somehow get in contact with you, you know, as soon as possible if they wanted that report. All right, that has been the episode. I think we're about 50 minutes now, so we'll call it quits here. Good job. This is one of the the more uh, dry lessons, the incidents, accidents, and emergencies. Again, try and remember, take notes on the things where I highlighted that they would be on your exams. Don't overdo it. It's There's already so much information. And yes, it's great to know everything. Of course, it's great to know. But when you're starting off, it's a fire hose. So make your life easier. Things like incidents, accidents, and emergencies, you don't have to know every single thing about them because obviously if that happened, you would look up what to do, right? Know the things that are critical for your safety and to make you a good pilot at the time of flying and the things you have to know for your exams. You know, don't think just because it's there, just because it's in the books that you have to you know, stress over everything. Try to be efficient with your studies because it is a fire hose. And, and that's what I try and do with these, with our ground school, with these podcasts and try and point out, you know, in our ground school, it's the bolt. Everything I have in bold is what I want our students to take notes on and remember for the FA written exam. And then we quiz them after each lesson, quiz them on actual FA written questions, plus questions I came up with myself to further you know, make them a better pilot, make them a safer pilot and help prepare them for the, either their check right or their written exam. So again, uh, thank you for getting through that. The next episode is going to be lesson seven on FAA advisory circulars. Again, something good to know. You don't have to know the whole list of circulars, but something good to know. And you might be asked about one or two of them on the FAA written exam. So we'll cover those. And then we might, well, actually most likely the FAA Lesson seven, that's going to be a short one. Then lesson eight will be other airmen certificates and ratings. Kind of mentioned this before, um, how you can get other certificates and ratings, you know, what the difference is between getting an, another certificate for, you know, the, the, the category and class of aircraft or airmen. And then what, what ratings can you get with the same category and class of certificate? So we'll talk about those. And then we might even get into... Lesson nine on formation flight. And then the last lesson of, of this section is dropping objects, which I kind of already talked about, but we'll cover that again. So in our next episode, episode 13, we'll get to lesson seven of section three. That's going to be on FAA advisory circulars. Again, that's one of those things where you don't need to know everything, but there are a couple questions you might be asked. So we'll cover those things. And then lesson eight is on other airmen certificates and ratings. We talked about this before under the category class and type things, whether it's certificate of airmen or certificate of aircraft. We mentioned how depending on what you want to do, you may want to you may have to get another certificate or you may just have to get an additional rating under your specific certificate. So we'll talk about that. And then lesson nine is on formation flight. We might get to that in the next episode. So hopefully. 
hopefully we will, and we'll be able to then finish up Section 3 on pilot certifications, qualifications, and regulations. And then after that, we'll move on to Section 4, which is aircraft airworthiness requirements, which starts to get a little bit more more interesting and a little bit less dry. And then section five is weather theory charts and information. So we'll just continue on from there in the audio ground school. We got a lot of lessons yet to come. So thank you for listening. Please, again, like I said, leave us a review, subscribe, share with your friends. Uh, It'll really help us out. And I appreciate you guys listening. I'll catch you next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time. Everything's great and dandy. But once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy, heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to start to get behind the aircraft. When this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. 
We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You want to avoid being boring. You want to avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read. So for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.